What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your Friday show, the weekly wildfire update, talking about all sorts of topics involving wildfire around the planet and other subjects that I just find fascinating that are in that nature and outdoor realm. If you enjoy the show, you can also check out our Wednesday show on our Substack. It's the Hot Shot Wake Up. Substack.com. We are supported 100% through our Substack, just $6 for a monthly subscription. You get extra podcasts every week, workouts that are geared towards someone who's outdoors a lot, someone who hikes, firefighters in general. Recipes are coming back this fall. Access to our article archives and all the articles that we put out weekly. Check that out if you're interested and want to support the show. We are 100% ad-free, and that is how we are able to continue that. This week, Outside Magazine put out an article that we're going to discuss here first. And if you take it at face value, you would think the world is ending. And I'm not here to hate on Outside Magazine. I have read their publication before. It was years and years ago they put out the best outdoor cities and towns in America. And fascinating enough, my hometown and the town I was living in at the time were respectfully number one and number three on the list. And once I was handed that by people who knew where I had lived in the past, I started reading some Outside Magazine articles. And there's some good stuff. They'll they'll tell you where some pretty cool hiking trails are. And there's some articles in there that are fascinating and very well written. But the one that came out today is a conversation about wildfire severity and how it's devastating our national parks. And basically the world is coming to an end and we need to have a culture shift. Now, the entire article isn't off base. There's some good stuff in there and they're talking about some real world hard hitting issues that I agree with. But the examples they use to say that wildfire is this epidemic that is, quote, the new normal and we need to change the way that we address these things could have been done better in my mind. And one quick example would be the Calder fire. And they use that as an example on the El Dorado saying, well, look at the Calder fire. And of course, we've talked about this. The Forest Service had plans to mitigate fuels in that area for over a decade, and they never did. And they even gathered the community in a church hall to have a meeting saying, hey, we need to reduce fuels on this forest around your communities. And we got funding for it, and we're going to go ahead with this project work, but it didn't get done. And then the Calder fire happened, and of course, there was no fuel breaks or mitigation done over the last 12 years. And the fire ripped like they thought it would. But they're using that fire as an example for catastrophic new growth wildfire that's unpredictable and very extreme. Now, before we dive too deep into that, just to let you know what Walsh will cover today, there's conversation about new work that's going into the giant sequoias and fuel mitigation projects happening there. And just some good information on what is happening. That has kind of become a hard-hitting topic because it was used as kind of the forefront and title for some legislation that came out earlier this year when money was allocated for old growth forests 
And there was this big inventory process that was supposed to happen and should be happening. And there are some hard set dates on that. And we'll have to watch to see if things are fulfilled within that timeline. But hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into this project. And the Sequoias, the giant Sequoias were used as like the title of this whole project. It's not just for that forest. They will be inventorying and doing all sorts of other counting and assessing of different old growth forests around the nation. But just today, there was some conversation and articles that came out talking about that. There's also some proactive things happening in San Diego County. They are putting together some community workshops, I guess we're going to call them, of information to homeowners on how they can mitigate wildfire risk around their properties what they can expect with wildfire in their area, and other work that can be done. I'm always greatly in favor of things like that. As I've said before, I don't think people should be told what type of landscape they can live in or live on, but I think it is the resident's responsibility to understand the ecosystem that they decide to live in and understand the realities of what can happen in that environment. If you live on the coast of Florida, you should know, hey, there's going to be hurricanes and you should take actions for that. If you live in California, you should take actions for earthquakes, wildfires, things like that. If you go to the northern United States, hey, you better be prepared for some negative temperatures, blizzards that will shut a town down for days. And as a homeowner and as a resident of these environments that you're in, you just shouldn't be naive of what can happen around you. So I am very encouraged when I see things like this taking place in local communities. I know it's not easy to set up. As I've spoken about before, I had worked in Utah and their community engagement was very, very proactive. They they would go around and door knock with pamphlets and just have chats with people in these mountain communities. And no, it wasn't always 100% accepted and people weren't always 100% welcome. However, once you kind of got the community engaged in it and you got to the point to where some project work was being done in those communities, people would come out and watch and they would say thank you and bring you food and beverages and everybody was just getting educated together on what the dangers were in their neighborhoods. So we'll talk about that and of course an operational update of what's been going on around the nation when it comes to wildfire and worldwide. I was speaking to some firefighters in Australia earlier this week and asking what their outlook was, what the season was looking like. And they said they have a La Nina coming in and they have for the past year too. And they don't expect a large fire season down in Australia. They did mention that maybe some more remote areas would see some fire activity but where they had been seeing large catastrophic fires over the last decade or so, they weren't expecting to see that this year. And even last year, it was, it was minimal. Washington had some fires. South Dakota hit a big fire. And other than that, there's a lot of project work going on around the nation. Up in Canada, a couple new fires in British Columbia, but again, slowing down. So we'll cover that as well. But We are going to jump into this Outside Magazine article 
It's entitled How the 2022 Wildfire Season Affected Our Public Lands. This article was written by Emily Pennington, came out on October 7th of this year. And like I said, there is some, I guess I would call it fear-mongering or sensationalism in this article. And it's just, that's just the, that's just the way of the world as it is right now. But we'll piece through this and I'll, I'll give my opinion on what I see is 100% correct and, and a good direction to go in. And what I see as kind of grasping a little bit, I guess. But the article starts, this year's fire season is coming to a close. And thanks to mitigation techniques and luck, it wasn't as catastrophic as many predicted. But that doesn't mean we're in the clear. It says, This week, Yellowstone officially reduced its fire danger from high to moderate, and Rocky Mountains began to close park roads due to snow. It's safe to say that this year's fire season is coming to a close. What began as the driest January and February in California's recorded history and early season flare-ups in New Mexico, okay, we'll touch on that, It all ended with lower-than-expected impacts to our public lands, a testament to recent prescribed burns and drastic efforts taken to preserve the country's remaining giant sequoia trees. Now, just on this first paragraph, and Emily Pennington, if you happen to listen to this, God bless, I'm not hating on you. I'm just giving my professional opinion on this piece. I'm sure if you read my work, you would have some opinions as well, and that's fine. So that's an okay thing. Be great to have a sit-down conversation. I love talking to people who have differing opinions than me. So let's piece apart that first paragraph. Yes, 100%. January, February in California, driest on record. Fuel moistures, all-time lows. And it was a a drought. They had 40% of the snowpack in the mountains coming into springtime. And then they talk about New Mexico. Okay, and then they say, well, thanks to the prescribed burns, things weren't as bad. Well, if you're going to talk about New Mexico and say prescribed burns saved us, well, you have the Calf Canyon and the Hermit's Peak Fire, which were both prescribed burns that were the state's most devastating wildfires because they went awry, they were lost, and they burned up a bunch of homes and communities. 300,000 plus acres and almost a half a billion dollars, if not that much already. So, yes, it was very dry. I put out many articles on the drought index and what's going on with that early in the spring. However, one, prescribed burning was banned most of this year. And two, prescribed burns in New Mexico are what caused catastrophic wildfires down there in the southwest. Just a little background information on all of that. Continuing, it says, Of course, with the western United States experiencing the worst drought in 1,200 years, many of our public lands did not come out unscathed, and park officials are worried about the ever-shifting future of America's best idea. And America's best idea is the the national park system. That's That's the catchphrase that was used when these things were created. Unseasonably dry forest lands in northern New Mexico help strengthen a series of massive blazes, the largest in the state's history, and forced May closures of the Bandelier National Monument and the Velez Caldera National Preserve. 
again, these, these wildfires were caused by prescribed burns and pile burns that were ultimately poorly, on the pile burn side of the Calf Canyon, they were poorly managed and watched after. On the Hermit's Peak side of the prescribed burns, they just got into a situation and had a wind event that was unexpected and they didn't have the resources needed to hold. So you can argue different reasons for both, but that needs to be said in this article if we're going to be talking about that stuff. It continues saying in July, the Washburn fire in California made headlines as it tore across the southernmost swath of Yosemite National Park, threatening the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias and prompting evacuations in nearby community of Wawona. I apologize if that pronunciation is wrong. An August flare-up in Michigan's Isle Royale brought a trail and campground closures to areas surrounding the Greenstone Ridge Trail, the park's premier overnight trek. Okay, now on this Isle Royale fire, I followed this and made a couple posts about it. Ruled as a human-caused fire, okay? And quite frankly, it wasn't that bad. It was kind of a healthy burn. Understory, yes, some trees got torched, some trees got scorched. And if again, if you've never been to Isle Royale, go. It's a must-visit national park. If you're a local and you don't want a bunch of -of out-of-towners visiting the most beautiful place ever, I'm sorry, I'm promoting it right now, but if you get the chance, go to Isle Royale. I've been with myself, family, gals that I've been with, we've hiked around it. I was born and raised in an area near there, and I could day commute to this place, and it's fantastic, especially if you like canoeing, maybe kayaking. There's a cool cave system out in the water on Lake Superior, and it's just a very cool area. But to use that fire that happened in August as as saying that there's all sorts of things happening in wildfire and it's traumatic and ever-growing and out-of-control situation, I would just say is a stretch. And if you're in the wildfire world, just pull up the pictures on these things and you'll be able to see the burn patterns and what's going on and you can tell it's not that devastating of a fire. It looks healthy. Did it close trail systems and campgrounds? Yeah, of course it did. Did it piss off visitors? Yes, it made an inconvenience for people, but that's not the end of the world. They interviewed Cecily Muldoon. Man, I'm sorry if I got your name wrong. Cecily Muldoon, who's the superintendent of Yosemite National Park. It's C-I-C-E-L-Y-M-U-L-D-O-O-N. Quote, fire season isn't really a term that matters much anymore, as fires can happen at any time. With our 40% of normal snowpack conditions, it's just dry and ready to burn, the superintendent said. Garrett Dickman, a forest ecologist at Yosemite, said that this year was a continuum of a trend that's been accelerating for the last several years. In 2021, the U.S. saw its first two fires, the Dixie and the Calder, in in recorded history, jump across the Sierra Nevadas. 69% of the Lassen Volcanics total land was burned by the Dixie, while the El Dorado National Forest was severely scarred by the Calder. The Caldwell Fire of 2020 singed 70% of the lava bed's national monument. But these percentages pale in comparison to the Car Fire of 2018, which burned 97% of Whiskeytown National Recreation Area. 
making it the most destructive wildfire in national park history in terms of infrastructure loss and proportion of land affected. Now, this is what I was talking about earlier. You can make arguments for a lot of fires that went big, and but as been covered even by mainstream media, the Calder fire, I'm not going to say could have been prevented, but the severity of it could have with the project work and prescribed burns and pile burns that were planned for decades in advance, that just never took place due to all sorts of reasons. You could argue from funding, you could argue from resource scarcity, but also just negligence and dare I say laziness and misallocation of funds and just quite honestly, just shit didn't get done. And it was planned. They told the community it was going to happen. So, yes, these were big, devastating fires that that tore through communities. But if we're going to tell the story, we need to provide background on what led up to this. We can't just say that the world is changing and climate change caused all of these things. And, and I'm not what they would call a denier, okay? I understand that climates change, and they are changing. But it's not the whole story, and there's other things going on, especially when you talk about Calder and New Mexico specifically this year. And also what's not mentioned in this article is that acreage is down unless you pull in Alaska and you pull in Texas burned a lot this year, so if you pull in Texas. But they have revolving seasons. Every five, six, seven years, they have a big one, and that's when you see these national averages go up. There's just a, it's a big story. The wildfire story and the history of it is a big story. And you can't just zoom in and say, look at this, it's horrible, and this is the reason why. There's multiple reasons, and I think it's a disservice not only to the land and the ecosystem, but to the people who are listening and don't fully understand how this all works It's a disservice to them to not provide them the full spectrum outlook of what's going on. And again, Emily Pennington, I'm not hating on you, but again, I'd love to have a conversation with you and we can, we can talk about this. I agree with most of what you're saying. I just think there's more to the story. It continues saying further East, The Rocky Mountain National Park has felt stress of an unpredictable fire season as well. The shoulder seasons are now active fire seasons, says Corin Nydick, Resource Stewardship Division Manager for the park. 2020 was a real wake-up call. Nydick explained that the Cameron Peak and East Troublesome fires of 2020 burned through Thanksgiving, reaching 100% containment much later than is typically thought of as prime season. Okay, now I'm going to have to stop again. If you follow these containment dates, if you are doing landscape management with wildfire, or you just have a longer runway for what the duration of the fire is going to be, oftentimes you can have a containment date November into December, but a lot of these fires end of October, early November, simply because, now I'm going to be frank here, simply because you can get more funding, you can pay your people longer, you can get overtime and hazard by being on those fires, and 
you can manage it with snowfall. So you just you just say, hey, this thing, we're going to call it contained when the snow flies. So just because it's not 100% contained and it's November doesn't mean the fire's burning. It's most likely out. A lot of times when a fire is 79%, 82% contained, it's out. However, that's just not how it works when you talk about these things and you give your reports and you put out press releases on these incidents. And the main reason is, is you can't call something 100% contained and then something squeaks out. And then everybody would be like, well, you said it was 100% contained. So there's a lot of caution used and a lot of leeway and a lot of space given on the back end of these containment dates that, yes, can go into October, can go into November. And in all reality, the fire's 82% contained. There's flurries in the air. The fire's out and crews are rebuilding fences. But the media is saying, hey, this thing's not even 100% contained yet. So again, if you're on these incidents and you know how these things work, there's a lot of firefighters out there where they'll look at an IAP, which is an incident action plan, which depending on the type of fire it is, one through five, they either come out daily, bi-daily, and so on. And firefighters will look at these action plans and it'll say their fire is 77% contained and they look up at the mountain and then the fire's out. But that's just the reality of the situation. A lot of folks who aren't in the wildfire world don't fully grasp that. But I think it's important when we talk about things like, hey, there was fires in the Rocky Mountains last year that weren't 100% contained until October. That's normal. Like, that's, that's normal. What's not normal is dog hair thick forests that haven't been managed, and when they start, they rip hundreds of thousands of acres. But again, that's a multi-issue solution. And to Outside Magazine and Emily Pennington's credit, they actually get into that at the end of the article, where they talk about these multifaceted solutions that can happen. It continues saying, Years of historic drought across the American West has caused some scientists to begin modeling a drastic shift from the conifer-dominated landscapes to shrub-dominated landscapes, explained Brian Kittler, Vice President of Forest Restoration at American Forests, a nonprofit organization that works with land management agencies and tribal nations to develop forest restoration strategies. Such a change might mean that repeated high-severity fires become a more regular occurrence as we lose larger, more fire-resilient trees. This year, at midsummer, seasonal drought exists across 70% of the western half of the country. In California right now, parts of central and southern Sierras are at or close to all-time record low for live and dead fuel moistures. This is true. However, if you follow the drought monitor put out by NOAA, which comes out monthly, and if you're interested in all these weather events, I suggest following the drought monitor, and I've written many articles on that on the Substack if you want to check that out. And yes, we started this year with severe, severe drought, especially in the Western United States. However, as the summer went on, that has dissipated. Drought across the Western United States is actually down as we've moved through the summer into fall. And this is easily seen just by going to NOAA and checking out their drought monitor maps that they provide the public. 
That being said, there is still drought across the Western United States. Undeniable. That is the case. It's undeniable that snowpack was down 40% going into this last spring in 2022. But that being said, there is progress being made in that the amount of the Western United States that's in severe drought has slowly decreased from late summer till today. I just think it's important to note that. I'm not denying that there's drought across the, the West. I'm not. Just look at the Colorado River and all of the reservoirs that PG&E is now cloud seeding to try to refill back up. If you don't know and you're a new listener and you haven't listened to the podcasts and articles I've written, PG&E in California is the largest contracted cloud seeding company in California, followed by some others up in Tahoe and some other power companies. But they have been granted the right in California to cloud seed to try to refill these dams and reservoirs, which their hydro hydroelectric power runs off of. So all of you who are listening out in California, when you get really mad that PG&E is, quote, causing all of these wildfires, which seems to be the narrative, you should also be aware that they are in control of your water systems. A lot of people don't know that. If you were to ask your average Californian who is the largest contracted cloud seeding company in the state of California specifically to make it rain to fill up reservoirs, I guarantee you not even 5% would say PG&E, but that's the case. California came out and said that. Again, it's just all a part of this story. There's angles and aspects that you can pull and grasp at from all angles. But full circle, drought is going down. However, there is still drought. This is where the article kind of gets into legislation and problem solving, which I like. I'm a fan of problem solving. And this is where I think they kind of hit home. It says the National Park Service's current policy for wildfire suppression is to put out any fire that is not naturally occurring or, in other words, man-made. According to Muldoon, when lightning strikes a new flare-up, the National Park Service typically assesses the current weather patterns, potential to impact visitors and communities, and proximity to recent fire footprints before deploying staff and putting firefighters in danger. Quote, we actually manage every fire that's out there, end quote. What we try to do is manage them in the most appropriate way. And this was the case in... Yosemite this year with the Red Fire, and I'm pulling this from memory, and I can't remember what the other one was. Maybe the Radford. Was it the Radford Fire? Anyway, there was two fires in Yosemite that they managed, and they brought in some teams to help do that. And yes, there was some extreme fire behavior for a while, but eventually it started raining and snowing, and these things mellowed out. But I'm a huge fan of that. If lightning strikes, or even there is a man-made fire in these park systems, we should always have in the back of their mind, can we manage this thing? A good example is this dragon fire down in the Grand Canyon National Park, where they had this little lightning-caused fire, if I remember correctly, and they just decided to manage it, and it did good. It burned the understory. I posted some videos from it. The wild thing out of that is they found some human remains during that managed fire down in the National Park 
Grand Canyon that came from an individual who had been missing for like 15 years out of Idaho. I did a whole story on that on the Substack, and it was just fascinating. We got into the amount of people that go missing in these national parks and national forests, which is staggering. It's staggering how many people go missing or are reported missing in our national forest systems. Anyway, that was a little tangent on all these managed things, but I'm pro-managed fire. These things should happen. The article continues saying, A bill introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives in March aimed to alter this decades-long strategy, that being putting out fires as fast as we can. The bill calls for immediate suppression of any fire on U.S. Forest Service lands within 24 hours, neglecting the location and cause of the fires. The bill has not yet been put to a vote. Very interesting legislation. I believe it was introduced by an individual from California and a bunch of constituents out in California got mad that a fire wasn't put out immediately and it ended up blowing up and burning up a bunch of homes. Again, I've done podcasts on that specific event and this specific legislation and this representative that everybody in the fire world likes to hate on, but we're not going to rehash all of that. I would hate to see policy go back to put out every fire immediately within 24 hours. That's not the right way to manage wildfire in our nation. Closing up, the article says, Still, the shift of fire seasonality from a summer and early fall stressor to a year-round mission is putting a strain on first responders that they've never before encountered. This part really irks me. Our firefighters... They work long hours, sometimes 16 hours a day for 14 days in a row, said Sean Nagel, a veteran wildland firefighter and acting fire director for the National Park Service. Quote, some of our firefighters and first responders have unfortunately taken steps such as suicide, and it's just tough, end quote. Now, here's what I'm going to say about this. The way this is framed in this article, it says... There's no longer fire seasons. It's year-round fire season, and I've discussed this before. That bothers me because it's kind of always been that way. I've been on fires down in Florida in early April. I've been in fires in Minnesota late November, and this has been going on for decades. There's different timelines for fire season in different states. So yeah, yeah, it's a fire year, but there's still seasonality in certain regions. Secondly, they are using the explanation of no longer fire seasons and fire years as the reason why wildland firefighters are committing suicide. That's not the case. Wildland firefighters are committing suicide because they're underpaid and financially stressed. Firefighters are committing suicide because their home life is wrecked because of the scheduling that they have, communication issues where you could have a pregnant wife at home or a strained marriage or a sick family member and you get called to a fire and you don't have any cell service because you're out in the middle of nowhere sleeping in the dirt. And then after seven days, maybe after 10 days, you finally get cell service and you get a cluster of messages of just angry this, family member died, 
complications with the pregnancy, and the laundry list goes on. And then when they get home, there's a bad de-stressing that happens, an unhealthy de-stressing, which usually includes alcohol and drugs. And I've stressed this a lot. I am not a sober person. I enjoy a, a cocktail, a glass of wine, things like that. But I am aware of the damages of alcohol and how it's a horrible coping mechanism for depression and stress. It actually makes you more depressed. If you took high school health class, I don't even know if they have that anymore, but they teach alcohol as a depressant. But my point being, these are the reasons firefighters are committing suicide. Firefighters are committing suicide because they've been promised a permanent position for five years. And after the time is up, they are told once again, hey, actually, we can't give you that permanent position because A, B, and C. And they counted on that raise. And on that point, the next paragraph in this article talks about the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, which in itself is an oxymoron because they spent billions of dollars to reduce inflation. That's just not how it works. Inflation is inflation of the money supply. Anyway, I'm not saying where the money went is a bad thing because it's going to some forest management projects, but be aware of definitions and what all these things mean. Point being, there were supposed to be raises coming out of these things. There were supposed to be wage boosts. There was supposed to be hiring of more permanent employees coming out of all of these things, and they botched the entire rollout. But in this article, we are blaming suicides from firefighters on the fact that fire season's getting longer. I mean, stop it. Address the goddamn issue. It's financial stress. It's home life stress. It's a broken body that the government won't help fix. It's medical bills that the government won't help pay for. These are the reasons. I just had to get that off my chest because... I read that paragraph and was like, holy cow, you really got that one wrong. And they're pulling at the heartstrings of the reader to say, look, fire season's now year-round and firefighters are killing themselves because of it. Climate change is killing firefighters. Just pause for a second and get to the root of the issue. That's my two cents on that part. The article closes saying, our cultural story is going to have to change as well, as fires continue to alter historic vistas within our national parks. Quote, our visitors see the historic pictures, Nagel says, and they might see a little bit more black on the ground than their forefathers and foremothers saw when they visited Sequoia and Kings. Absolutely, that's positive. We should be burning these landscapes. We should be putting fire down. This whole last couple weeks, I've been posting nothing but basically prescribed fire around the nation. And that's good. We need to do that. As public land managers continue to see the impacts of high-intensity fires across the parks, the narrative seems to be shifting from one of shock to grim acceptance. Horrible mentality to have, but okay. Nagel explained that changing the way they talk about fire in the park service will hopefully benefit the mental health of visitors who might be in for a surprise. Okay, if you are having mental health problems because you visit a park and see some dead trees, wake up, shake it off. It's a forest and there's fire in it. If, if, 
if we are concerned about the mental health of visitors seeing fire on the landscape, we have a bigger problem in our society than, than prescribed burns. Oh, man. Lord, help us. <laughs> oh, geez. It says, quote, It's a bummer I'm not seeing what my dad saw at Sequoia and Kings 40 years ago. But guess what? This is the new stage. There is something that my kids may see or not see. So that wraps up the article. Very interesting article. A lot of good things are touched on, like I said. And there's also things where, as someone who's been a professional in the industry, it just irks me and pushes me the wrong way because, and I'm not saying it's, it's malicious or done on purpose. It may just be that there's a misunderstanding about what reality is. But when we use the New Mexico fires as an example of how bad wildfire season is, but we don't say that it was an escaped pile burn or escaped prescribed burn, or that the forest manager or forest supervisor that oversaw those is now third in line for the Forest Service in Washington, D.C., and we say that the Calder fire is another example, but we don't say that the Forest Service had plans on paper to mitigate all of this, but then just didn't do the work, is a disservice to the reader, and it's a disservice to the firefighters who fought these fires. It's a disservice to the people who lost their homes, and it's a disservice to firefighters who have committed suicide. I know some, my brother knows some, everybody in the industry seems to know someone that has done this. But to say it's because fire seasons are getting longer is a slap in the face. And that's why I hammer these wages, the overtime that was botched this entire season, benefits, mental health days, so you don't have to dig into your sick leave. And when I read these mainstream articles on wildfire, of course they're pushing a narrative, and I understand that. I push a narrative. The narrative I push is firefighters don't get paid enough, there's mental health issues, the food at the camps is horrible. You should bring back the salad bar that was taken out because of COVID and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying I am up here not providing a narrative either. But I just think so much is missed. So much is misconstrued and misunderstood. And that's why I took the time here in this segment to try to explain that. Outside Magazine isn't bad. Like I said, they provide all sorts of great articles, especially if you are an outside or outdoor enthusiast and want some cool trails and parks and lakes to go visit. They, they pinpoint those things and, and point you in the right direction. But when I see something that I intimately know a lot about, I just have to comment on it. Tell me what you think about all of this. What narratives are being pushed that you see are incorrect? What things are being missed by the mainstream media that you think they should be covering? Am I way off base with my explanation? Let me know in the comments, and let's continue this conversation and try to educate the public, friends and family, and we can continue to advance good fire on the landscape and maybe even avoid legislation in Washington, D.C. that really wants to turn back the clock on all of these issues. 
I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. Wildfire season is slowing down around the nation. However, it's not over. There's still a lot of fires out there that are being managed. There's a lot of crews that have actually been called back to the Mosquito Fire, but it's not because the fire's still going. It's because there's a lot of rehab work that needs to be done, taking care of a lot of dead standing trees. You have to rehab hand line that goes in to reduce erosion risks. And if you're not in the industry, we build things called water bars. Or if you're on the line and you have to build them, everybody says, Wadaba. But basically, you dig trenches and reinforce them to divert rainfall water flow off of the hand line that's been built and out of these fire breaks that have been created to stop erosion and a large water flow streaking down these forest hillsides. That's a lot of the work that's going on around the nation right now. There's a lot of machinery work that's going on. I have a friend up on the Six Rivers Complex and others where they're actually proactively bringing in loggers to take some of this material out, which is something you haven't seen a lot of in the last few years. So it's actually nice to see this kind of work being done. It's full circle fire suppression. There's a fire. We work. We put this thing out. We have to remove hazards and snag trees. And instead of just bucking them up and burning them, we're now allowing them to be used for everyday products that people consume. They had discussed this in congressional hearings earlier in the year where a lot of the stress was, hey, can can we bring in United States workers to take advantage of this dead standing timber and make work and build the economy of these small mountain towns that rely on this kind of commerce. So it's nice to see that, that that's actually taking place. Fire activity around the nation this week. We're at a national preparedness level of two. There was 93 fires in the last 24 hours nationally. There was three new fires. And like I said, there was, I believe, two in Washington and one in South Dakota, or it's two in South Dakota, one in Washington, but not an extreme amount of activity. There's still 11 uncontained large fires in the nation, and there's 70 fires being managed for resource benefit or fire use. And as we talked about in the last segment, these are the types of fires where you're going to see those containment dates pushed back into November and maybe even into December. And that's not saying these are actively burning fires. Someone sent me a video the other day of them driving out. It might have been in Montana but the Rocky Mountain region, I'm pretty sure. They were driving out to to check a smoke on a fire that hadn't been contained yet, and it was snowing. Snow was coming down. They were driving up a mountain road. That's that's normal. That, that happens this time of year. It gives permanent employees a reason to get out of the office and drink an excess amount of coffee and listen to the radio as they drive through the woods. That being said, the Northwest area is at a preparedness level two. They had nine new fires. Two of those were the large fires, and they still have seven uncontained large fires. And it's the same names we've heard before. The Cedar Creek is still burning. They have that at 40% contained. 
and a cost of $122 million. The Cedar Creek is 122,708 acres, with nearly 700 people still on it. That fire up in Oregon on the Willamette National Forest. Now, if we want to talk containment dates, the containment date or estimated containment date for the Cedar Creek fire is December 1st. And again, that's not abnormal. This is a large fire with a lot of perimeter and things that are going to be smoking for a while. There's the Goat Rocks fire, the Kalama fire that we've talked about before as well. And again, their containment levels are starting to grow, but these are incidents where they've built indirect fire line and they're just kind of letting the fire smolder and back down until they hit these containment lines and they can start growing containment even more. Both of those incidents approaching 18 million and 15 million respectively. And then they've just moved a bunch of fires into that managed fire realm. There's about 15, 17 fires in both Washington and Oregon that have been moved into these fire use and resource benefit incidents. And again, a lot of them have containment dates of Halloween and some of them just the first couple weeks of November. Northern California is at a PL2. Basically, the only thing there is the Mosquito Fire. There's been some other fires. There was this big bar fire in the Six Rivers National Forest just yesterday, but small little fire. It was flown by air attack. They thought about bringing in jumpers, but instead they considered bringing in hotshot crews on boats, and they got the thing wrapped, even though they don't have it 100% contained, which again is normal. You wrap up a fire and you don't immediately slam it at 100% contained. But back to the mosquito fire, this thing is basically wrapped up. 95% contained, 77,000 acres, and a cost approaching $160 million. Like I said, a lot of the work that's happening there is this rehab, restoration work, and it really is just a bunch of manpower work. You have to go rehab fire lines and bring in a bunch of equipment to repair everything that's been put in place to stop these things. The Great Basin, down to a PL1, not a whole lot going on there. Basically, the Moose Fire is still burning, but again, not a lot of activity, smoldering in some places, 130,000 acres, and $98 million. There's still about 150 people working that incident. And then in the Great Basin, again, there is... A, a list of managed fires that are taking place, which have these containment dates of October 31st, November 1st, November 8th. And these things are just going to smolder and skunk around and give, to be quite honest, it's just going to give work to people where they can watch these things and chunk in a little bit of line here and there and just make sure everything's staying in the current footprint of these incidents going forward. Rocky Mountains, PL1, they're basically done. They had this holiday fire in South Dakota. They had the gusty fire in South Dakota. 2,900 acres and 400 acres for both of those. The holiday fire was on BIA land, the Cow Creek Agency. And the gusty fire was in Charles Mix County, South Dakota. And both grass or grass and timber fires that sparked and kind of ripped super fast, but they were able to catch these things. The Northern Rockies, 
PL1 like everybody else, and everything on their list is a managed fire. Approaching 40 now at this point in time, mostly in Montana, but a lot in Idaho as well. And just a scattering of fires that cost $15 million, $400,000, $17 million. And a lot of these fires don't really have any personnel on them. They may have one or two or a small wildfire module. The largest being up in Idaho, which is the Kootenai River Complex, still says they have about 50 people on it. But other than that, there's not a lot of folks actively engaged on these fires. And again, they're not contained. Most of them are 0% contained with containment dates pushed back into December. But that being said, these, these things aren't threats. At this point in time, there's higher RHs, the weather is cooling, and they're just going to let these things do what they want to do, but are observing them enough to where if they do pooch out and start to run, they will have the opportunity to jump on these things. And the southern area is at a preparedness level two. They had 49 new fires in the southern area, most of those just being in Oklahoma and Texas. They are still catching some smaller fires at frequency, but none of these things are really getting that large. Texas is something to watch. Oklahoma is something to watch as we proceed through the rest of October, especially if you look at these predictive services maps that have been put out. And it shows that the southern area still has some wildfire risk going into the fall season. I'll take this time to thank my paid Substack subscribers and all the subscribers in general. Again, you can be a free subscriber on the Substack. It's the Hotshot Wake Up substack.com. You won't get all the benefits of the paid subscribers, which is $6 only, but you'll still get some articles and the podcasts will still be available to you, but just not all of them. If you do want to support what I do here, everything that I provide when it comes to fire updates, which are daily prescribed fire updates, firefighter donations, when those are available and everything else that we do, those $6 subscriptions are what make that possible. It's also what makes it possible for us to be 100% ad-free in everything we do. Yes, we do do some giveaways. We give away chainsaws, boots. We actually have a knife giveaway coming up at the end of this month. I reached out to an individual named Bill Harzi, who is a knife maker, top-tier knife maker. If you read his bio and see what kind of work he has done, making knives for Special Forces, Green Berets, and he reached out to Spartan Knives, and we're putting something together where we're going to give away one of their products. Again, they are not paying me. This isn't a sponsored event. They are just willing to provide something for the community. And if you want to be a part of those giveaways, any paid subscriber to the Substack is automatically entered into those giveaways. The next Chainsaw giveaway will happen on Christmas. And more details on this knife giveaway will come out this weekend. I'm putting together a write-up on the Substack, and I'll push that out to everybody so you can see what's going on there. But ultimately, it's the highest quality knife you can get. I'm honored that they are willing to do this. I actually talked to Bill this morning. Great conversation and all-around good guy. And I'm happy that we can do this together and provide something for our paid subscribers as we move on through the year. So again, thank you to all the subscribers that are out there. If you want to support this, just go to the Substack, thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on the subscribe button. Just $6 supports everything that we do here. 
and it helps us maintain a 100% ad-free product. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. If you live in the wildland urban interface, one thing you should be aware of is defensible space. This is the space you create around your property that allows either you or firefighters to defend your property adequately and successfully. Now, I believe that this is the responsibility of the homeowner. If there are adjacent lands that happen to be county or city or federal, then of course that responsibility falls on the government, and I believe it is their responsibility to create buffers around private property, specifically for wildfires. But I understand this needs to be a group effort, and we're going to talk about this, but first, as I said in the beginning of the show, there is a wildfire preparedness workshop that's slated in San Diego communities coming up this next week or weeks. The Times of San Diego put out this quick brief informing everybody in San Diego and San Diego County that these things are available to homeowners. And we'll punch through that and then we'll have a conversation about defensible space and how neighborhoods and neighbors should get together and help each other to get all of this stuff and this work done. It says a series of community workshops will offer preparedness guidance this fall to residents of San Diego area communities at high risk of wildfire hazards. The three half-day fire operations in the wildland urban interface meetings will be led by Fire Safe Council of San Diego County and local firefighting officials. They will teach participants how wildland blazes start and spread and provide them with the strategies on how to protect themselves and their property from backcountry fires, according to these organizers. Quote, For anyone living in the wildland-urban interface, creating and maintaining defensible space is a requirement, said Anne Baldridge, Vice President of the Council and Executive Director of the Resource Conservation District of Greater San Diego County. This workshop builds on the principles of defensible space and provides valuable information about how to see your home and community through the eyes of a first responder, as well as how to better prepare for wildfire. And then it says that these meetings are taking place November 19th at 10 a.m. at the Santa Isabel Nature Center, and there'll be even more happening in December as well. So after seeing this, I just wanted to have a conversation about defensible space for homeowners out there and what firefighters see when we come to your properties. Now, if there's a wildfire in your community or a wildfire approaching your community, firefighters will go into the neighborhoods and they will do something called structure triage and will go through and will decide if your home is a standalone structure, meaning no work needs to be done and your property is going to survive. We'll decide if it's a prep and hold, meaning that we need to do preparatory work on your property 
and we need to have resources there to hold it, and that can be done successfully. And then there is either a prep and leave or just a leave, meaning we can try to do some work around your property really quick, but we're not going to stay and defend it because it's likely that it's not going to be saved. And they'll go through the community house by house and they'll take a a fairly brief look at what's going on on your property. You know, do you have cedar shake siding? Do you have trees hanging over your roof? Do you have firewood on your porch? Is your lawn three feet tall and dead? Are your windows open? That's mostly how houses burn down is somehow an ember gets inside the home, either through a screen or an open window or a flue on a chimney that's open. And then, of course, once the inside of the structure is involved, you basically have lost all chances to save that property. Now, when it comes to defensible space, there's a lot of things that can be done. First and foremost, clear debris or debris often around your property. Clean out your gutters. I've been on fires where gutters are packed full with pine litter and leaves and it's the middle of the summer so it's super dry and if you get an ember in those gutters you basically have provided an entire ring of fire to start on top of your home and yeah it's not easy for some folks to climb up a ladder and dig out your gutters but then again we should get together with our neighbors and talk about these things like hey jim can you come over and clean out my gutters? I'll have a barbecue. We can watch the game. I'll have drinks for us. And then if you need help moving some debris off your property and maybe swamping, if you're going to do some chainsaw work, I can help you with that. But make it a community thing because a lot of the times your house can be very well defended, but your neighbor's properties are a wreck And it is possible that if their property catches on fire, there is that chance it can be spread to yours. Now, with that being said, what I hate to see and I know happens is people do preparatory work on their property, but then some county officials or a city person comes in and says, hey, you weren't permitted to do this work. You have to stop. We're going to hit you with all sorts of fines because you violated ordinance rules. And there's a barrier of people even being able to do the work on and around their property. There's people that have hit me up saying, hey, there's Forest Service land or there's city land next to me and there's dead trees. Can I just walk over there and cut them down? And my response is, well, you can do that, but there may be repercussions from you doing that. You shouldn't just go lop down trees on state and federal land. You you shouldn't do that. doesn't mean you can't do that. There's just going to be legal ramifications if you do. What I suggest is you start bothering city hall or county commissioners and say, hey, I see this as a hazard. I see this as a problem. And if it's not mitigated and something happens, you will be legally liable. Send them that letter. Go to these meetings and talk to these people and make all of this known. But the big point that I'm providing here is I believe communities need to be educated on this stuff. Don't rely on government to do all of the education for you. However, you do have counties and cities like San Diego that are providing these things. And I think people should utilize that free information that's being provided to help them 
protect their properties. Encourage your neighbors to go, or if your neighbors don't want to go, take the information to them if you are someone who attends these things. And if things are promised by these community governments, hold their feet to the fire and make sure that these things happen. If they promise you chipper services and they say, hey, if you're going to clear your property, we'll bring in chippers and help with that, or we'll take some of this debris away for you, or, hey, there's a county piece of land around your cul-de-sac, we promise we'll come in and mitigate that. Make sure that's done in the springtime before fire season hits in the summer. And that's an email, a phone call. Hey, you know, in December and November of last year, you guys said you were going to come out here and take care of all these dead standing trees. We're hitting that fire season. I'm just wondering when the county or the city plans on doing that. And just have these open conversations. It's a lot more healthy than just walking around your neighborhood screaming at the government saying, hey, they, they're fucking us. They, they didn't do any work, which... I understand that mentality, but if you don't actively go out and try to do something about it, then you're just going to complain your whole life and everybody's going to not want to talk to you because all you ever do is bitch and moan. That being said, there are going to be some people that will be irritated if you're the one pushing the button saying, hey, how come this hasn't been done? Or, hey, Bob, we said we were going to clean out some debris in the back of our yards today and where are you? Why aren't you here? You know, Bob might get a little mad at you because... You won't stop bothering them about it. But that's just a little rant on community engagement and rounding up the neighbors. It'll get you outside. It'll get you fresh air. It'll get you exercise, which will make everybody feel good. And not only will it bring a community together, it will provide education in the case of an emergency, which is great at reducing the chances of panic and irresponsible decision-making in the time of crisis. So I think it's very important to pe- for people to prepare for these things. And that being said, that's the end of our show. Again, thank you to all the subscribers on the Substack. There's a link at the bottom of the podcast if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you can't afford the $6 subscription, just like the podcast where you're listening. Subscribe to the podcast download it, share it is a big one, share these things with people, and I would appreciate that as well. As always, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while, see how they're doing. I know there's someone out there that you know maybe isn't doing well, but you just haven't picked up the phone and called them. That goes a long way. Make sure you're getting those quality calories because those are the ones that count. Stretch, hydrate, get some exercise, workout. I provide workouts every week on Monday on the Substack. People are saying they love them. If you want something to do during the week, there's an entire archive. There's so many workouts that have now stacked up that are available to everybody. Anywhere from calisthenics, kettlebell work, there's some swimming workouts that I've put up. But remember, you got to get the rest to recover. So get that sleep. But when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh